Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. The battery technology that's out now allows that to happen, going from a power mode to more of an energy mode. And we are hopefully on the bleeding edge, on the tip of the spear of putting those into Puerto Rico and the Bahamas in the wake of both these uh, horrible storms. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey there, Solar Warrior, and welcome to another episode of Suncast. I cannot tell you how many times I've been told that I have got to have today's guest on our show. He is one of those enigmatic folks who seems to know everybody and be in every deal in the market that he's serving. Mr. Chris Burgess and I had the pleasure, finally, of meeting at New Energy Events CREF Conference in Miami uh, recently. And he's the project director for Rocky Mountain Institute's Islands program. Now, I know that sounds glamorous, but the thing that stands out to me most about this interview is truly the depth of knowledge and expertise that this man brings to the table about what makes the Caribbean market work. I was also really very interested to better understand the underlying why that drove him from a successful entrepreneurial journey toward working with a nonprofit. And I think his answer is quite insightful. I'd like to encourage you to set aside some time to really listen through the entire 80-minute conversation. It is quite worth your while. Among the key highlights explored are how Chris cut the corporate cord at the EPA to finally work for himself and just how long that took him, the role of nonprofits in regional development programs, along with some examples of the financial leverage that that gives the region and the projects, as Chris put it. Three pillars of their development strategy there at Rocky Mountain Institute and the core skills Chris developed and their looks for and trains in his team at Rocky Mountain Institute for project development. Remember, you can always find the resources and learn more about today's guest and recommendations, as well as many more, more than 220, in fact, other founders' stories and startup advice at mysuncast.com. While you're there, Please subscribe to the Suncast Tribe so you won't miss the weekly insights into the conversations, events, tools, and tips that we're curating to help you in your personal and professional pursuits. We have some goodies coming at you, those who subscribe to the Tribe. Things like an Ask Me Anything episode with, or rather webinar with Mr. Jeff Ressler of Clean Power Research. We'll be bringing many more things like that to bear in the coming weeks and months. So subscribe. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, as you have heard, we have an amazing uh, entrepreneur, entrepreneur, experienced project developer on Suncast today. My new friend, uh, who I feel like I've known forever now, Chris Burgess, is the projects director for RMI, Rocky Mountain Institute. He works with their Islands Energy Program, overseeing and managing 
large renewable energy and energy efficiency portfolios throughout the Caribbean, helping islands move to the next phase of the energy transition. This dude has 15 plus years of environmental professional project management experience. And today we are going to try to squeeze as much from his very expert wisdom as we can and learn how, his, uh, how he's grown into the leader that he is and recognized role model that he is in the market today. Chris, welcome to Suncast. Thanks, Nico. Glad to be here. Absolutely, man. It has been fun getting to getting to know you better. And it's always, you know, there are several times where I get the pleasure of having someone like you on the show where for well over a year, maybe more, folks have said to me, when are you going to have Chris Burgess on Suncast? And uh, my answer has always been, when's somebody going to introduce me to this cat? Because I don't know him. <laughs> we, we sort of operate in the same circles, right? Like going to Craft and other, other places where we would presumably run into each other. And finally this year uh, yeah, at Cref, we had a chance to to touch base and this this magic is happening. Glad to have you on Suncast and glad to get a chance to really dig into uh, the work that you guys are doing, but also the work that you've been, I'll say curating as your your thumbprint on, on, our, on our segment, our sector, right? I'm impressed with the wealth of knowledge that you bring to the role you have. And one of the things that I know that we're all curious about is how someone sort of navigates the career trajectory. So would you take me back to the time where, as a young urban planner, environmental uh, specialist working for the EPA, perhaps, you started to realize that the skill set you were building was applicable to the impending energy transition. When did clean energy really become a thing in your, in your, your space? And how did you uh, realize that that was where you wanted to turn your energy and your focus? Yeah, Nico. Um, again, thanks for having me on. And, and uh, I'm really excited about you know, this interview and, and really going through Spotify and all your previous suncasts. I mean, you, you have really been hustling and all the insights that I've gained just over the last couple of months have been pretty amazing. In terms of my history, I guess it was probably 2008 when I had looked back and seen, you know, I guess my eight year career at that point through environmental planning and uh, being part of the US EPA, that the skills that I had you know, built over those prior eight years were pretty applicable to wind energy development. And there was a particular small company in Annapolis that uh, my wife had actually had a, a breakfast with um, just randomly. And they were, work, they were looking for someone that could kind of navigate the regulatory space. So we made an introduction back in 2008, and that was with Dave Murren and Marcellus Butler, who had just formed Alpha Energy. And they, they certainly had um, all the business savvy you know, Marcellus had developed a marina. You know, Dave had been a, a, a leader with um, U.S. government and, and several businesses prior. Uh, but they didn't have anybody that kind of understood all the rules of the road when it came to wind energy development. You know, obviously, there's a lot of environmental concerns. You know, there's geotechnical. There's, um, you know, certain siting that has to come into play. So I was able to, you know, pick up some of the pieces that they hadn't fulfilled and, and really helped them with the, the very first wind energy developments in the state of Maryland. Give me some context around the work that you did at EPA leading up to meeting the folks at Alpha. How, how were you developing your skills? What were you really actively working on day to day? Well, it actually starts a little bit prior to that. I worked with an engineering firm right out of college um, in Greenville, North Carolina, and they had me work on a lot of the environmental permitting that they had to 
go through for wastewater, water treatment plants, wastewater lines, water treatment lines. And so I learned a lot about, um, you know, the National Environmental Policy Act and what actually had to happen for these federally sponsored projects to, to move forward. And, you know, you're taking water and sewer lines, you know, hundreds of miles, sometimes through wetlands, sometimes through, you know, endangered species type habitat. So there was a lot to learn in that regard. Uh, and that really helped me at EPA understand, you know, proper siting of projects, uh, particularly when it came to uh, Superfund sites uh, and any other, you know, federally declared um, disaster areas, particularly after, you know, Hurricane Katrina, 9-11, Columbia Shuttle, all these disasters that my uh, responded to. So just having an understanding of, you know, macro scale development, what had to take place from both a, a federal and a state and a local regulatory context was key. Uh, and of course, I was wrapped up in that in, in almost a decade. Through that time at EPA and even before with environmental planning, permitting, et cetera, which sounds eerily like the kind of work that we do with solar project development, right? What do you feel like were the core elements of your learning or, or skill sets that you, uh, that you were banking that really helped give you credibility in that first engagement, those early discussions with Alpha, where you started to realize, A, these guys are doing something that I find really um, interesting and I have a skill set that I can offer. What were those skills? And then B, what did they see in you that was different from the other people they were starting to engage with? Yeah. I don't know what they saw in me. Um, <laughs> a short white guy. Uh, Ener that, energy. That, 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 that talks a lot, right? Ambition. Um, uh, but, but as far as the skill set goes, um, you know, I could speak directly to some of the concerns that were being raised to them. You know, they were to get three utility scale wind turbines on Greenberry Point in Annapolis to replace three old, you know, World War II style communication towers. And it wasn't just going to be a novelty. You know, they, they had a firm business plan on how this could make money, connect to the local Baltimore Gas and Electric. Um, but they couldn't speak to, you know, the aviation, you know, risks. They couldn't speak to uh, the, uh, you know, bird, bat, wildlife type risks. Uh, they couldn't speak to the setbacks on coastal zone, coastal zone management, you know, wetlands, any of those type of things. So I was able to, you know, to bring those, you know, environmental, uh, wildlife, you know, aviation safety, regulatory skills and, and experience to the table. And I think they just picked up on that and say, yeah, this must be our guy. Now, do you feel like there was a moment or a time period at EPA where either through mentorship or through happenstance projects you got and got engaged in, you started to think actively, what are the core skills I'm beginning to develop and how do I grow those? Or was it just sort of, these are the things that you learned because you got thrown into various projects and you had to learn on your feet? Yeah, I think it was the latter. I think, you know, you know, I worked in emergency response, solid waste and emergency response for, for a number of years. And you really do have to, to work on your... On, on your feet because uh, you're, you're generally in a response mode and you're training for responses. And there's all kinds of things that come into play that you've got to reach out to other branches of EPA to figure out. And, and just being able to be multidisciplinary, right? To think on your feet, be able to get the right answer in a short amount of time. I think that is really helpful uh, when it comes to, you know, any type of renewable energy development, especially in nascent markets. Because you, you're not going to know. You have to be okay with uncertainty. If you're not okay with uncertainty, this is not the, the path for you. 
you have to seek out that certainty on your own terms. That's the reason I really was more or less attracted to renewable energy project development, because, you know, you really do have to be a jack of all trades. You have to be able to, you know, seek out the challenges of land development, of finance, you know, of interconnection and dealing with a utility. There's just so many different facets of renewable energy development that you have to have an interest in and a passion for. So the other connection that I've made just in our brief discussions around how you parlayed your experience from EPA, uh, you know, we joined uh, the solar industry or the renewables industry around the same time, 2006, 2009 uh, timeframe, as it was really starting to become, to move out of this nascent sort of backup power market into legitimate um, uh, power generation and utility scale development. One of the things that there's always this conflict, and I think it still persists to this day, between uh, the the rooftop market and the ground mount market, right? The 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 constraints, the the hardships, the the things you have to navigate are much different for development in both areas. Uh, so, from a skill set perspective, you sort of you have to sort of pick which direction you're going to go. You've been working, as you said before, on Superfund sites, and it was only maybe in my like in 2000, around 2010, 2011 timeframe, as I started getting into water treatment plant development, that it occurred to me there was this whole world of sort of government-funded structures that helped redirect brownfields, superfunds, et cetera, to useful development. I talked about this with Chad Farrell uh, from Encore um, in one of last year's episodes, but it occurs to me that perhaps that was something from your sort of perspective in the panorama you saw earlier than others. How did you connect the dots? How soon in your career did you sort of connect the dots between the available programs and the skills you had developed and how that could help you transition into renewables? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it probably happened, you know, organically in that 2007, 2008 timeframe when, you know, solar development out West and wind development in the mid-Atlantic and and up and through the PJM territories was becoming competitive, right? Competitive with gas, competitive with wholesale markets. You know, I think it occurred to me that there, there's a whole there's a whole program at EPA that did a lot of GIS mapping, Superfund sites and other designated areas that could be ideal for renewable energy development. And they would give certain attributes, you know, in each of the GIS of, of why that was so. And for any developer out there, you know that siting can be difficult, particularly for wind, because, you know, it's the ultimate nimbyism. Not in my backyard, for those unfamiliar. <laughs> yes, yeah, not in my backyard. So where, where better would you cite renewable energy than an already distressed, you know, pre-disturbed area like a Superfund site? Yeah. Like a landfill. It's, it's not going to weigh. It's not going to look prettier. So let's get, some, let's get some public good. Let's get some public services out of these areas. And I think that was, that was pretty strong correlation to some of the difficulties we were having in a, in a very land constrained area like Maryland of where do we put these monstrosities? Where do we put these wind turbines? That makes sense. You know, obviously you've got to find where the uh, utility scale wind resource is, but, but after that, where's a good site for these, you know, where can we get it permitted? Where will it not cause an uproar and be seen as a, as a positive addition to a community? So one of the things that really intrigues me and it's by no means unique, we talked about this a bit offline uh, in prep for today's call, that there are a lot of folks, particularly in the environmental space, have always had this affinity for how can I 
actually create good while doing well and make an impact, uh, help change the direction of policy regulation, you know, leave a thumbprint on, on the world that is going to leave a legacy perhaps, but certainly make an impact that's beyond just making a dollar for the company you work for. Uh, it's admirable in my view, in my view, anyone who goes and works for a, comp- a company that is in government agency like the EPA, but there are loads of folks like, uh, like, like Chris Burgess who begin developing these skill sets and see that the private sector can take the, now like highly values the skill set you've developed. You mentioned your wife having a meeting with Alpha, you becoming engaged with them, starting to think about the wind development project stuff, actively engaging with them in it. What may not be apparent to someone listening right now is that you were doing this all while working at the APA. So yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'd love to understand better where where was your head at in that overlap. How did you maintain? this full-time gig at EPA with this sort of part-time gig at Alpha, when did it start to dawn on you like, wow, I can't do this anymore? And what was the catalyst to say, okay, let's go full-time into Alpha? Yeah. Um, so, it, you know, Alpha was de- very much a side hustle for, for a number of years. And the work was some, somewhat correlated, as we spoke of earlier, uh, in terms of the reg- regulated Superfund sites and being able to find prime areas for, for renewable energy development. But you know, it it it's hard to to uh, to cut your starting quarterback when you, when your backup you know is not ready to throw the bomb, right? Not ready to throw the quick out. So it probably took about four years for me to really cut the quarter with EPA and give up the golden handcuffs of the of the federal you know pension and benefits to go full time with Alpha. And that really was event driven around um, a critical mass of of solar energy projects that we had, mm-hmm. and that happened. Right around 2012. So I don't want to jump directly to the the departure catalyst yet. I'm genuinely curious how you managed the two roles. Literally, was it like nights and weekends? How did you engage in a way? Were you working in an office at the EPA? You know, for those out there thinking, hey, I'm working in marketing at, you know, this random module manufacturer. I'm in operations at you know, this inverter company or, or, you know, whatever. And they're thinking about changing their career, but maybe they're not even in the solar industry thinking about moving into the solar industry. You know, this is informative of the context within which someone who's come before us has done this, right? Like, you know, I've had a, a similar experience, um, not directly correlated, but I'm really curious, how did you manage the time, the focus, and also the potential sort of internal uh, conflicts at EPA in terms of discussion, setting expectations, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. So I went to the ethics officer and I did this all above board and, and them that I was, you know, being brought on as a, as a partner in a company, um, had to list the company and to, you know, list who the partners were, but I had a compressed schedule at EPA. So I always had at least one day off, if not two days, two days off a week, just work 100%, you know, 10 hours that day on alpha. So I would schedule the the face to face to face meetings during that time. Um, I had a separate phone, you know, from the federal government. So I, you know, would manage text and emails on that phone, phone calls if I had to take them. Uh, just pure hustle. I mean, it's, there's a lot of people out there doing the, the side hustle thing, trying to get um, you know their own business off the ground or trying to get a joint business off the ground with other partners. And um, that's just the way people have to have to get it done. And, and thankfully. You know, BlackBerry technology back then. I had an early Black, I had an early BlackBerry Same. iPhone. Would allow us to be able to do that. You know, yeah, kind of was kind of new in the early two thousand. 
did you have a family at the time? Uh, my son was born in 2009. Wow. My first son was born in 2009. Chaos. So, you took this side awesome. hustle and then your it son was, was all, That's right. Well, you know, then I had the federal paternity leave for a while that I could. Oh, that's great. I had seven weeks of that. So in between feeding and nap time, we were good to go. That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, as I advise others, I mean, I always think about like, where are the margins? How can you optimize your time? Because oftentimes, and especially government employees just aren't efficient with the division of time and labor or are just looking for that security blanket of check in, check out. But there's a ton, as we've mentioned, that are not. Uh, it just may be environmental, like the environmental aspect of the fact that, you know, you were um, coming out of college in the early 2000s, the tech boom or the tech bust, uh, trying to figure out where you could direct your career, there's certain security. You know, there's another layer here, which is you decided to leave a government funded a government job into uh, a for profit and entity during the global financial crisis. <laughs> yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But like I said, it was event driven. And, and when times are good, you, you, you go to the trough. Right. So we had, you know, we had like six different renewable energy projects that we were developing at the time. Were you doing the math of. Okay, what I project I'll earn and how this company is growing has now replaced what I'm doing at EPA. I can't justify going back to work. Yeah, I think okay. that was part of it. The other part of it was my wife. You know, she's she's a she's an entrepreneur as well and a breadwinner. And you know, we could lean back on her benefits for the family. Oh, cool. What does she do? My my daughter was born in 2012, so it's at these <laughs> these crazy times that I'm making these moves. Um, she is uh, in IT sales. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, you know, she's got big, um, you know, law firm clients all throughout DC. I'm so glad that we brought that in because that's not something that we've talked about before, but the number of times that I've had, I'm using quotes if that people can't see because they're not watching, but successful men on the surface are hustlers, but have had the, the distinct, um, I'll say privilege it's of privilege. having, yeah, it's a privilege of, of yeah. having a wife who, oh, yeah. uh, she's allowed me to follow my passion and follow, and follow exactly. my without exactly. her. I would still be trying to, you know, inch along mm-hmm. into the federal government. Yeah. I mean, that's so fantastic. She's, and she's, the, she's the real story of the opportunity. You know? I love it. Yeah. What was the transition from wind to solar at Alpha? Because there's a, you know, that's a, obviously that's a big transition in our industry. Some folks unwittingly got left behind because they stayed in wind and were unwilling to change. You helped to transition Alpha from wind to solar. What was that about? Well, I think that's just, um, you know, I was a, a victim of geography. So you know, not in Iowa, right? I'm not in Wyoming. I'd probably still be developing wind projects if I was. You know, I'm in Maryland. So there's very little land area that large-scale utility projects are going to happen. And that's and that just that, you know, that little panhandle up top between uh, West Virginia and, uh, and Pennsylvania, what we call Western Maryland. Uh, and that's where all the development, you know, happens. What we were able to do is when the solar renewable energy credit market came online in Maryland and New Jersey uh, for a little bit there in Pennsylvania, we were able to take the skill sets that we had and experience that we had built through wind. You know, it's the same development process. It's the same interconnection process and apply it to solar, right? And to your point earlier, the rooftop guys had no clue. It's a totally different market, right? We're on the utility development side, which is unheard of in Maryland, right? That's, that's more of a, an out West thing. Um, so we were able to take all that experience with PJM, with the interconnection process, all that experience through the, the local jurisdictions that, you know, through permitting and siting and take that to solar. 
which by the way, was such a breath of fresh air. <laughs> How much easier is it to site a solar farm, which you can't see from, you know, five feet away if there's a hedgerow, right? To, you know, from wind turbines, which you can see from miles away and have all these bird and bat negative externalities, which were really prominent, you know, in Western Maryland. I'm not going to say it was easy. There's nothing easy in our industry, but it was a nice seamless transition to solar energy development. And we were fortunate to develop the first, you know, large utility scale project uh, on the Eastern shore of Maryland, right? Because of the skill sets that we had brought to the table. Coming from, uh, from the wind side, you had also an understanding of the compartmentalization of the project development process. So many of the companies that I saw fail early tried desperately to sort of either raise capital or leverage all their capital to build, own, operate. Uh, how did you guys at Alpha distinguish yourselves in the marketplace by choosing a segment to, to, to or like what was your point of entry? Or did you also kind of jump in to the whole spectrum owning the project from beginning to end? Like how did you look at, at monetizing the project? I think we had some, you know, rookie, naive thoughts of being able to own and operate. Um, but, you know, that's such a, a tax equity, you know, big fun game that we had learned. Um, our niche was identification, project identification, early stage development, going through um, lease option agreements, you know, solidifying land security that way, uh, going through the PJM interconnection process, which we got really savvy at. And then being able to bring in partners and sell at that point. You know, we always wanted to put our development fee kind of back in the ownership. So we would have a piece of that equity, but it just never worked out. I think early on, people talked about that equity flip model. But for us, it, it just never worked out. So we were really development fee driven. And our goal was to get enough development fees to, you know, build the company and then invest in our own projects, Right. We wouldn't need to bring in um, outside investors or at least too many outside investors. So this is exactly the thing um, I saw is that folks try to jump in with good intentions, but trying to sort of own their projects from the beginning, from all sort of walks of life. You see, you saw real estate developers that had their own cash and they would ultimately end up, it, it sort of became the new winery, right? Like they jump in and not realize the things they didn't know and they'd lose millions instead of making millions instead of understanding where they can harvest cash to build that store to then start owning projects. And it's always been my advice as well is if you're early in, develop and sell so that you can build up equity and own your, and, and own a project down the road as opposed to trying to get, like knock it out of the park with your first project. That is really, that is really interesting. A lot of the things that we're talking about with the skill sets that you developed, uh, I, can, I can see how they directly correlate to the work that you're doing now uh, with RMI. Uh, before we go into sort of the direct work that you're doing. There's probably folks that don't really know that much about RMI. Uh, Rocky Mountain Institute, if you would, could you spend some time, uh, you know, a few, few minutes, just setting the stage for Rocky Mountain as an, as an agency, what it, how it was formed, what it's for, uh, the role it has played over the last 30 plus years in the marketplace. And then I'd like to discuss a little bit about how you got in, engaged and involved with Rocky Mountain. Yeah, sure. So Rocky Mountain Institute is the brainchild of Amory Lovins. Amory Lovins uh, formed the nonprofit Rocky Mountain Institute in 1982. And this was, for folks that don't know, this was during the time of kind of the quote unquote energy crisis in the US, you know, the Jimmy Carter solar panels on the, on the White House and, you know, long lines at the, at the gas pumps, et cetera. Well, Amory had a contrary thesis 
to the way energy was built, transmitted, and utilized in the states. And he called it the soft pathway. And instead of building huge, you know, coal-fired or, or nuclear, um, or even at the time, you know, heavy fuel and diesel power plants, and then transmitting the power, you know, hundreds of miles. His soft pathway was all about energy efficiency and building, you know, right-sized power plants near the load. So he was way ahead of his time. You know, this is back in 1982 when, when solar was, you know, whatever it was, $25 a watt. And you know, wind, tur- wind turbines uh, weren't used for electrical generation, even in Denmark at the time. So this was very early stuff. And he had written a lot on energy efficiency and conservation. And so the think tank, if you will, which RMI was, was really about thought leadership, white papers, and consultations throughout the U.S., both at federal governments and utilities, on how to uh, build in better efficiencies and cost savings into um, the whole plethora, you know, from, from A to Z of the electricity industry. And, you know, for those of us in the energy business, or maybe even in the conservation business, we're very familiar with Rocky Mountain Institute. How did you first become engaged with or more familiar with Rocky Mountain? What, what called you to Rocky Mountain out of a, a successful 10 plus year run at, at Alpha? You know, obviously I, I've known about Rocky Mountain Institute. I think anybody that's taken any environmental science classes, either in, you know, college or in grad school, have heard of Rocky Mountain Institute just because of Emory Levin's thought leadership and, you know, the energy efficiency homes that he had built, you know, in Colorado and, you know, just the, uh, the overall icon that he was. So I knew RMI from that perspective, but RMI was very much at the time uh, and still very much is uh, a think tank providing thought leadership. They weren't on the implementation side, right? Um, back in, I think, 2012, Sir Richard Branson and a number of other folks, including Jigger Shah, had started Carbon War Room. And the Carbon War Room was all about implementation. Was all about entrepreneurialism. Was 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 shining the light on the business opportunities in the energy transition across many sectors. It was shipping, uh, trucking, um, you know, buildings. All these places that folks may or may not realize that there was dollars to be made in in transition of these different sectors to the the low carbon economy. And one of the one of the pillars of the carbon war room again because there was so entrepreneurial base was islands. And the reason why they selected islands, because islands were one of the only places in the world, renewable energy kilowatt hours beat business as usual without any subsidies, without any grants, without any SRECs, without any PTCs or ITCs. It was my kilowatt hours are cheaper than your kilowatt hours. Let's go, let's go toe to toe from a capitalistic standpoint, you know, pure Richard Branson stuff. So they had started the carbon warm, I guess, 2012. In mid-2014, a friend of mine said, hey, you know, I know you, you've been down in the Caribbean developing a couple projects. You should look at the carbon war room and what they've done. And, uh, and Branson had gotten together, I think it was 10, it was about 10 prime ministers uh, or heads of state from the Caribbean uh, down to BBI on his island of Necker. To, um, to kick off what's called the 10 Island Challenge. And that was uh, a challenge that was put to him uh, and Jose Maria Figueres, who was the chairman in the car mormon at the time, who was the um, president of Costa Rica during their whole you know, 
environmental and renewable energy push in the late 1990s to take 10 islands to 100% renewable. At the time, uh, Aruba had announced that they wanted to go 100% renewable. And uh, the UNFCC said, well, why, why just stop at one? Why not 10? And so Sir Richard you know, got this whole 10 island challenge uh, kicked off at Necker. So they were looking for you know, an operations manager, which was you know, a very poor term, <laughs> what they needed. But if you dug in, what they really needed was someone that understood ground level project development. Right? And all the multidisciplinary, um, you know, components that, that come to that, uh, that, that are required for, for the first renewable energy projects. And so I went through a series of interviews uh, that summer after I applied. And, and it was kind of strange. I was like, OK, I've interviewed with like three people at RMI, but I mean, with uh, Carbon War Room. But now I'm starting to interview with people at RMI. You know, they had announced at the time that RMI and Carbon War Room were merging. And so it was kind of this funky thing, but um, that was my that was my real you know um, introduction to RMI was just because the Carbon War Room uh, was going through this transition, actually becoming acquired by RMI at the time. And the whole thought behind that, Nico, was and this is what year roughly? This is uh, 2014. 14. Okay. Uh, and the whole thought that behind that was think tank meets do tank. So you have all the analysis and you have all the you know the real economics behind this. And then you have the entrepreneurs that can actually take it into the market, right? The right industry leaders, the right networks to actually put thought leadership into practice. And that was because RMI had not seen, you know, exponential uptake in energy efficiency and renewable energy transition that they would have liked. And so this was a, this was a bold move on their behalf uh, to get more of their um, findings and solutions into the markets. What was happening at Alpha at the time? What were your colleagues at Alpha thinking as you're starting to engage in this process? I mean, it sort of seems like you're looking to transition out, but I can you know, I, I know that you're still involved in, in Alpha in in certain ways. How did you navigate that uncertainty? Right. So, uh, as you know, the whole solar coaster, the whole feast famine uh, mentality, and not just mentality, but the reality of of the feast famine and, and solar at the time, particularly in a in a state regulated market that can change on the dime, right? So, you know, Alpha wasn't being able to provide uh, the revenue that we each needed individually to stay, to remain full-time. We we each tried it for, you know, a number of months or a number of years, but we couldn't have enough to sustain all three of us at the same time, right? So we found that this was just, a growth opportunity for us, particularly in a market that we found attractive. You know, we didn't have a lot of success with the tax equity in the U.S. and actually it got you know shoved out of a lot of different deals because of the lack of tax equity that Alpha brought to the table. We we actually were in the Caribbean um, about a year and a half before the whole Carbon Warm announcement, developing a couple projects down there, just because we liked the fact that it was kilowatt hours versus kilowatt hours and not all kinds of you know, taxes and grants and those type of things that came into the equation. We thought it was an interesting play to, to learn more about other islands in the Caribbean, um, but also to, you know, set up commercial markets where Alpha or a lot of other project developers could, could thrive. So we thought it was a, a good, it was, a, you know, kind of a joint decision. Hey, Warrior, in this fast-paced change of renewables, what inverter company can you really count on these days? Well, how about CPS America with its 99% inverter availability guarantee? 
That's right, you can get 5 to 25 year uptime guaranteed by CPS. And CPS has a turnkey field service with both preventative and corrective maintenance. And service plans tuned to meet the needs of asset owners and O&M providers alike. If you'd like to find out more about what CPS can do for your C&I and utility business, head to mysuncast.com forward slash CPS. Hey, Warrior, question for you. Are you losing commercial solar sales because of high demand charges that minimize return on investment? Extensible Energy's DemandX software is an affordable new solution for reducing peak demand charges by 30%. No batteries required. Extensible's intelligent software analyzes solar production, utility rates, weather data, and more. Then it crunches the data, monitors solar and flexible loads, and automatically reduces peak demand spikes increasing your customer's ROI and decreasing payback time. Contact Extensible Energy at extensibleenergy.com for a free demand charge analysis for your project. Learn how Extensible's partner program for commercial solar installers can put more opportunities and money back in your balance sheet. Help me understand the transition for you that was going from alpha and developing projects to RMI and working for a nonprofit. I mean, they don't really sync all that well. I mean, what, you're an entrepreneur after all. So help me understand that uh, dichotomy. Yeah, exactly right. I think I had to, you know, splash water on my face a couple of times and say, hey, you're going to work for a nonprofit. <laughs> but there's a lot of extenuating circumstances around that. I think um, Alpha Energy at the time was, you know, being outcompeted by the solar cities of the world and the Borregos and, you know, the bigger solar developers that were coming in that, you know, could really leverage more scale, more money. So we were being outcompeted. We, we looked at the Caribbean just because, you know, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, you know, solar kilowatt hours or wind kilowatt hours were way competitive with diesel at the time. But once you get down there, you just see all the market barriers that were nascent regulations or non-existing regulations just a diesel centric, you know, energy system that had never been challenged to do anything else. So as a developer, you know, we were really building up a lot of soft costs, a lot of expenses going back and forth. And unfortunately, what that does is, you know, raise the PPA rates that you could have offered. So a nonprofit at the time made a lot of sense because you could come in, do some early stage um, de-risking, right? Do the enabling works, you know, build coalitions and build understanding with utilities, regulators, and and governments on somebody else's dime, right? Not on the developer's dime, which didn't have to somehow get a return on that. So to me, it just made a lot of sense. But I have to be honest with you, Nico, when I started that, I was like, hey, this is going to be short term, you know, no more than 36 months. I'm just going to get in here and get these markets right so we can start building, owning, and operating projects. But then when I got in the Caribbean, I started to be immersed in the culture and start to understand the Caribbean, you know, historically and, you know, who the people are and what they represent. I really started becoming, you know, more of a, of a donor myself where I, I kind of took the entrepreneurial hat off and said, I just really want to help this region. I want to help this region become independent, right? Become sustainable and resilient. And I really don't need any skin in the game, right? Cause what I can bring is my experience and teach and build up others to take on this energy transition themselves, there'll be plenty of time for me back in PJM, the largest electricity market 
you know, in the Western hemisphere, I'll, I'll get back to PJM and build projects and work into batteries. So that was, that was kind of the progression. That's really interesting because at the time you were late to late thirties, early forties, kind of thinking about uh, your calling and purpose, right? How are you going to uh, give back? Not just how you're going to make money, but how are you going to make an impact? I think it's interesting. And we'll talk a bit about this uh, in terms of RMI, sort of the face of RMI and carbon war room in the marketplace. But you'd mentioned that your original intention was jump in, roll your sleeves up, get some projects built, own and operate as a nonprofit. It isn't often considered part of the market operability that uh, that you would have been you'd be going in developing projects rather than developing processes and RFPs. How has that evolved over the last? Um, I, I guess it's been what four or five years that you've been with RMI now. Yeah, yeah, five years on on the nose. How has that evolved then in terms of your the, the RMI role in the marketplace. And I'd also like to hear from your perspective as an entrepreneur how your role at RMI is different from these previous engagements that you had. You know, when we got to the Caribbean, very, very nascent. I mean, most, I, no, all of the islands that we had worked on, started to work with rather, had zero renewable energy penetration. I mean, they may have like the novelty few panels, you know, on a rooftop here and there. But for the most part, there was zero renewable energy installations or capacity with the utility. So the first thing we did was try to get in and understand where the governments were in terms of their goals, you know, their pledge back to Europe for the um, UNFCCC, and then really get in the door with the utility, understand where they were. It took a number of months, um, but we we finally broke through in St. Lucia where we had the first meeting between government and utility and RMI, and we had brokered um, the beginning of a process. That process is called the National Energy Transition Strategy. And what that is for folks in the utility business, it's really an IRP, but it's less wonky. And it's definitely not just centered around you know, a public service commission or something like that. It is more holistic to that island and a, and a, and a number of stakeholders. National energy transition process is really illuminating because it's not just another report that goes on a shelf, but it really puts the facts on the table with an independent body like RMI. No skin in the game, you know, vendor, technology, agnostic, just trying to put the raw economic facts on the table. And once you have a, a common fact base, then you can start to, to chart a path that everybody understands and can buy into. And, and again, you know, we're, we're not saying that we solved all the problems between the government and utility, but we were able to get a common vision and at least agree on the first cohort of projects. And that was key. So what we do hand in hand with the National Energy Transition Strategies is we always identify a project and not a little novelty project, right? Not five solar panels on the head of, head of state. We're talking utility scale. We get the first utility scale um, solar farm or first renewable energy project in St. Lucia, first microgrid and large solar installation in St. Vincent, first solar farm in, in Montserrat, in Turks and Caicos, uh, and the list goes on and on. And it was the, the fact that we were able to do these first projects together with an understanding between the various stakeholders um, that allowed us to have success. And what that does is then kind of set a good precedent for the market, right? So all the permitting agencies, anything that had to be done to approve that project to, to start operating, we had already gone through. We had already kind of taken it on the chin. And then the goal is for us to then exit these markets, right? de-risk them, put in the first commercial projects, and then let the, um, the local market take over. 
when you're putting these projects in though, what's RMI's role specifically to help raise the investment? Obviously, like what we talked about, consensus building, helping make sure the right infrastructure is in place and the left hand knows what the right hand's doing. I want to make sure because I could be hearing one of two stories here, which is you, the developer, talking about how you were involved directly in developing this project and had sort of this an ownership stake, which is what one would expect from like an alpha type company. But RMI as a nonprofit, most would not expect that you'd be directly involved in the development process rather but you'd be involved in sort of bringing stakeholders in, holding more, space more, for more of a facilitator, right? A facilitation role, yeah. And that and that's one model. But I think because we had the inherent skills and expertise, it was easier for us to go and help the utility and the government identify mm-hmm. the land, right? Mm-hmm. De-risk the land, identify it, do the survey and do the topo map, do the geotech technical analysis, do the interconnection analysis for the utility. Right. Actually doing a lot of the engineering work. That yeah. Do, doing for... all that. And the beautiful part about Nico is we had grants that allowed to do, allowed us to do that on our dime, right? We spent like $350,000 in St. Lucia de-risking the site, bringing it up for procurement, right? And so once everything's finalized, we can take all that information, put it in the appendices of an RFP to go out to the market for you know, a world-class or at least regional-class EPC to come in and, and build the project, you know, have a, a little bit longer O&M. That way it gives the utility who hasn't done this before some time to transfer over operations to them. It's interesting because you do in that, real, in that way compete against a number of independent engineers that, that work in the market. A couple of people come to mind who who service the market by doing the same stakeholder outreach, but as engineers who can help sort of do the feasibility, pre-feasibility, set up the engineering documentation for an RFP, give them templates for RFPs, et cetera. Presumably, uh, however, not only does RMI bring a higher level of, we'll say, sort of credibility, but also, I don't know, like third-party-ness, right? Like this, this, what's the word? Objectivity, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, a level of objectivity. Are you also able to do it more cost-effectively than... Uh, other maybe small engineering shops that have that have similar chops. No, I don't think we're we're that much more cost effective. I think what we are is more comprehensive, and we understand what has to be done to de-risk these first projects in these markets, right? And we we don't do a lot of this stuff in house. The hard engineering is all subcontracted out, and we try to use um, as much local engineering expertise as we can. As a matter of fact, in a few of the jurisdictions, you actually have to use a local engineer because it's their stamp, you know, certification and registrations that had to be done. So, you know, we're, we're just like any other developer, right? We, we bring the idea, we bring the relationships, we bring the project management, but then we're going to sub out the geotech, we're going to sub out the electrical, we're going to sub out the local civil, you know, if there's a glint and glare analysis and an aviation risk study has to be done, we're going to sub that out as well. It must have been really interesting for you as well, because before... You were the boots on the ground, as it were. You know, you were going out doing all the hard on the ground work. Now with RMI, as I understand it, a lot of your work is building those teams. So how do you move from being tip of the spear, the person taking the direct action to directing the energy and direction of that spear, as it were? What skills did you have to develop there? And how how was that process navigated for you? Yeah, I mean, that just came somewhat naturally as as our portfolio you know, evolved uh, up to about 15 different islands, we had to hire 
really good local project managers. And, and we put them through, you know, a week of training, we fly them up to DC or New York, give them a whole primer on, on renewable energy project development. They actually are really participa- uh, participatory in that process because then they bring a lot of the, the local uh, relationships um, that go into, you know, planning, zoning, permitting, et cetera. So, yeah, we had um, nine project managers under my umbrella at one point in time. We're down to six right now, just given workload. We would just build this team up, you know, execute the first renewable energy projects in these various jurisdictions. And that's the goal, per se, is to to a jurisdiction and help them execute their first renewable energy project. Basically, show proof of, of concept. This is real. It's been being done in other places. Here's how you yeah, do it. Yeah, and re- really de-risk and demystify. I mean, there's so much BS that goes on with, you know, utilities and, you know, diesel experts. You know, these folks grow up in, um, you know, a diesel-centric utility. And you've got to show them on their grid, in their dispatch operation, what these renewables do. And once they understand it, they're bought in, right? Mm-hmm. This is a, this is a incredible economic savings for them, right? And in some cases, especially when battery storage is coupled, it improves operations, right? You know, incredibly. So that's what it really is, is de-risking and demystifying the operation. That way, you know, the next project can be done commercially. You mentioned that you started or you got your first sort of uh, nugget of success in St. Lucia. I know that we've talked about you got did six different projects in six different jurisdictions. This is a problem that many developers face. How do you decide where to spend your time? It's a disparate region. It's hard enough trying to figure out if you're in the Northeast, whether or not you're going to lean into something in NYSERDA versus broader PGM territory, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Zerac market. Like there's a lot of competing interests, especially if you're a small organization, you had limited resources. You know, it's not as though Carver Warren was a huge organization being rolled into RMI. No, no we only had a $4 million budget when we first started. So, so how did you think about the prioritizing the time that you spent and stratifying what jurisdictions or islands you were going to target first? Yeah, um, it's all about alignment. If we could, you know, it's almost like it's it's like a, a sixth sense. You know, you get in there, you kind of read between the lines. Is this government serious? Is this utility willing to work? What are some of the attributes, the dynamic between utility and government that we can get something done? We really had that in St. Lucia. We certainly had that in St. Vincent and in Montserrat. You were standing on the shoulders of, of others in that there was already an ongoing dialogue at all of these different islands or oh, did yeah. you have to start doing that biz dev and start thinking about? No, there's an ongoing dialogue because these, um, these governments had champions and these champions were the ones that represented you know, Eastern Caribbean interest in, in Europe when it comes to the climate negotiations. So there was the political will Right. And what wasn't there was some of the utility vocabulary, right? And the understanding of how the utility systems work and what are some of the economic levers that that we understood. And that's really the advantage RMI brings. I mean, RMI's been consulting with some of the largest utilities in the United States for 30 years. I mean, can really speak to utility business models and how this works. And once we made it an economic exercise and not a political one, 
right? Not a political climate, environmental one. We could bring, get the utilities to the table. I'm not sure how interesting it is to the average listener, but as a project developer, I'm always thinking like, well, if I, if I had to do this on my own, what steps would I take first? Is there some list I would look at? Is there, you know, is there a, an organization that I would go to like Caricom or Carolec? And then once I'd figured out like who those leaders are, let's say I've spent four, six, 12 months figuring out those leaders and I have some level of clout like RMI, do I come up with some sort of market mechanism that, that dangles a carrot and says, all right, let's see who jumps and grabs this first. It all comes back to the national energy transition strategy. Once you understand where the utility needs to grow to meet their load, and once you understand what their cost implications are for their business as usual, which is primarily running diesel units, then you can kind of peck along where they can save money. Like, listen, we can put a five megawatt solar generator right here and really reduce your ramping during your daytime peak. And we can firm that up and the extra capacity in the battery can be used to help with your spending reserve requirement, which is also really expensive, right? So once you understand the, you know, the utility and their whole dispatch and their whole business plan, where they spend money, where their pain points are, then you can, you can dovetail in renewables as the solution. So Lucilec has actually come out and said that for all new load, they won't be purchasing any new gener- generators. All new load that comes on will be taken care of by renewables. That's a huge statement. It became clear early on throughout your team as you guys were evaluating the, the dy- market dynamics, the, the energy transition strategies, and uh, the political will, each island, you could see that St. Lucia was ready to step up. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And that and that had a lot to do with the with the local leadership of Dr. James Fletcher, as well as the international leadership that he represented in the climate negotiations. So he was he was the catalyst from a government perspective. Then we had to, you know, knock on the right doors, market, sell ourselves as independent and not totally with the government interest to Lucilec. And and that was the key. And that's where RMI's objectivity comes into play. And are you going in as RMI to that government and saying, here's what we can do for you and here's what it'll cost you to do this thing? Or as a nonprofit, you're saying, here's what we can do for you. And by the way, it costs nothing. We're going to help you take the next step. Yeah. I mean, back in 2014, 2015, 16, we came fully free of charge. I mean, everything. Not only were we, or was our time free of charge, we would do the geotechnical analysis. We would do the interconnection analysis for free, right? That's the kind of money that we could bring to the table that de-risking money. <laughs> I guess in the grant world, I'm learning this, is it's all about leverage, CapEx leverage. So if you give me a million dollars and then I turn around that million dollars into a $17 million bridge or a $17 million seaport or a $17 million solar farm, then that's what that you know multilateral donor community wants to see. They want to see that you know, 15 to one, 17 to one, 20 to one ratio. And that's what we were able to bring. I understand. Uh, that is, yeah, that's really interesting. And it's certainly, I mean, that's why it's hard for, number one, it's hard for for-profit companies to be engaged in this in the early. It's just early, right. Yeah, and, and that's a misnomer we got to put out there. RMI is not there to compete with or displace commercial developers or commercial entities. We are there to put it on a catalytic trajectory toward commercialization. That's what we want. 
right? Yeah. Which is to say, frankly, and, and I've argued this with a few folks as well. They're like, oh, um, you know, because we had this conversation offline about how do you navigate this idea that you're out there ruffling feathers in the industry, you're a nonprofit actively involved in development and stakeholder engagement, providing direction for these organizations that may not align with the direction that maybe the commercial interests would want to see. But my argument has always been, look, if you're actively trying to develop in a market where RMI is actively trying to develop, you need to ask yourself, am I too early? Exactly. <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Chances are you're a little early. You know, yeah. I, you know a lot of times the, the hurdle rates on, on these projects are pretty massive, right? You know, they need double digit returns. Land's always an issue. They haven't quite navigated the p- politics yet. They may be talking to one minister, who, but not the whole cabinet and certainly not the utility. And that's the whole issue. Unless it's done holistically and with a multi-stakeholder process, it's probably going to fail. And there's a pretty long track record of that. For sure. And it's one of the reasons why people are, quote unquote, opportunistic about the Caribbean, right? Because they've burned, they've, they've bumped their knees and, and bruised themselves enough times. You mentioned part of the learning for you at RMI was learning to build, uh, build out these teams. No longer it's you out there doing all the work yourself, but you're helping empower and employ uh, local teams. But RMI has a large staff, I'll say globally, but even focused on the Caribbean, your islands team thinking Justin Locke, Roy Torbert. There's a handful of folks that are at a lot of the um, of the conferences that we attend. How do you guys divide and conquer in that way? How's the team built out to to accomplish the mission? Yeah, excellent question. So, you know, back to the back to the process. So national energy transition strategies is our planning pillar. And that's kind of core RMI, right? Convening, stakeholder engagement objective analysis gives you that set of facts you can move forward with and stand on, right? The second pillar is projects. Now that's what's new, right? RMI usually doesn't do projects directly, right? They influence projects, but we're doing projects directly in the islands just because we have the capacity to do so. And we think it's required for proof point. So those are, the, those are two pillars, planning and projects. Roy leads um, the planning pillar, I lead the projects pillar, and there's a third pillar of uh, leadership development. And that's really where we're hiring locally, we're putting people through these processes on the ground so the locals absolutely know how to convene, how to do analysis, right? How to, how to develop projects, how to procure projects, et cetera. And that is led by uh, Martin Ford, who's from Barbados, and Justin kind of oversees all three, right? Under my pillar and projects, my entire staff is from the Caribbean, entire staff, because that's, that's what it takes, right? It takes local project managers who we dub playmakers, right? PM, project manager, PM, playmakers. So they're, they're my playmakers. They're the ones that are going to make it happen, right? It's not me. I, I can give you some of the tools and some of the war stories, but it's you that are going to push this through and navigate the government bureaucracies and the utilities to get it done. One of the things you said that early on when you bring one of these playmakers into the fold of RMI that you do is you train them renewable energy project development. This is something that is right in your wheelhouse. So I'd like to spend some time thinking about those core skills that you help focus a project developer slash playmaker in developing. In particular, let's look at the constraints of the Caribbean market. I don't want to talk about like project development writ large, but what do you consider to be those core playmaker skills that are required? Incredibly high EQ, people skills galore. Someone that can read a room, that knows how to talk, a utility CEO knows how to talk to 
his admin assistant uh, and certainly knows how to talk to the minister of energy uh, and his or her, you know, officers that are in there. Someone who really knows how to bring together a group of diverse stakeholders one step at a time, you know, not trying to eat the whole elephant here. We're trying to get from step A to step B, you know, we don't necessarily look for individuals that have any renewable energy experience, because let's be frank, where are they going to get that experience, right? They're, they're not going to get it from the Caribbean, right? For the most part, they're probably coming from Europe, you know, South America, North, North America. In that case, they may be back home for family reasons, but it, it, it'd be like finding a diamond in the rough if they had a lot of renewable energy experience. What we want to find, project management experience, multidisciplinary experience, folks who have uh, taking, taken state projects through the gauntlet or large commercial projects, large construction projects uh, on that particular island. That's who we're going to look for. I thought it was really interesting. You mentioned more than likely these people are coming back from EU or other international um, uh, field of play for whatever personal reason they might have, but they want to come back home, so to speak, to the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Do you find that that is more often than not the case for the for the project managers? I mean, it's a, it's a special place. There's a ton of pride um, with West Indians about, you know, their home countries, their home islands. You know, I wish I saw more of it, but there's certainly um, some folks coming back to give back. The problem is that the job markets are just so small. Yeah, and that's the other thing. You know, some of these developers coming from the States or Canada or whatever, they don't quite grasp, you know, the utilities and the utility markets in the States are enormous. You know, PJM is the largest electricity market in the Western Hemisphere. I mean, there are so many people working in that industry. On St. Lucia, I mean, working at Lucilec is your high-skilled labor. I mean, that is a significant portion of your workforce that's highly skilled and well-paid. To go in there and try to disrupt that with some type of you know, North American business model, some distributed business model that puts all that back on villa owners and takes away from revenue of that company, that's disruption, right? Not just disruption for the utility, that's disruption for the whole economy. And maybe maybe the culture. So we got to be sensitive to all these things, right? We want the utility transition with the economy, right? Not despite of it, or not be left in the dark. So that's a that's another part of this that I've learned along the way is it's very holistic. It's an all systems type analysis. You know, these utilities have to deal with things that most major markets don't have to deal with, like the um, you know we just saw this week, the week that we're recording unprecedented earthquakes in Puerto Rico. You know, you guys, uh, which we're definitely going to talk about in a minute, uh, you guys wrote a paper that you co-authored how the Caribbean markets, in particular Puerto Rico, deal with these natural disasters uh, and how the utility can can support the evolution of the electric grid in the face of uh, these unavoidable natural disasters that with climate change are only going to increase how do you think these type, those types of discourse uh, both affect uh, resistance to change, but also are now in, in recent years motivating a desire for change within the Caribbean leadership? Yeah, two, two words there, cost savings and resiliency. So no one can you know, hide from the fact that renewables are cheaper and in some cases much, much cheaper than business as usual, you know, whether that's heavy fuel or, or diesel. You know, there's a handful of islands now that, you know, we've worked with and some that we haven't worked with that are 50% renewable energy during the day. 
And that is, you know, mostly pure economic savings for them. The other word there is resiliency. Just, you know, witnessing the incredible hurricane seasons over the past three years and the amount of damage and turmoil and heartache and loss that these hurricanes have brung. And really, you can't look at overground poles and wires and centralized diesel generation the same. I mean, no one can, even the even the utility. So things have to change and things are changing, but it's a it's a slow slug. It's incredibly expensive to underground. So we're finding a lot of traction with building generation closest to the load centers, especially at critical facilities, having it as renewable as possible, and then really constructing it to a category five spec, which is which is very new. You know, most of the solar was built to maybe category four, but most of us to category three prior to Hurricane Irma and Maria. Yeah, you guys uh, in 2000, um, well, I guess it was last year, 2018, you guys did, um, wrote this paper, Solar Under Storm. I want to read something from uh, one of the early pages. Uh, solar Under Storm was a document that you guys wrote, wrote around best practice for resilient PV systems uh, with hurricane exposure, in particular, focused on ground mount. Kendall Lee from Montserrat Utility said, you know, while we were fortunate not to have uh, been impacted by the previous hurricanes in the fall, we're planning to add a considerable amount of solar in the next few years, and we want to know how to ensure the survival of these new assets. And I find that, you know, as I've been uh, engaged for the last five years in solar project development in the Caribbean, uh, in particular, PV, uh, ground mount, utility scale, while it's getting we'll call it easier. Uh, the number one, the, the number one sort of insurance risk uh, above all else, as well as uh, argument against these generators is that they're exposed to cat five hurricanes and now, <laughs> and now earthquakes um, hitting, hitting multiple uh, country, multiple islands this week in the Caribbean. Help me understand, uh, or maybe explain for us a bit, the the paradigm that you're operating in around these types of um, these thought leadership papers like Solar Under Storm, I think you guys are coming out with a new version of it, so feel free to talk about it as well. But how do these how do these documents and the studies that you guys do incorporate into the work that you're in, engaged in? Yeah, yeah. So again, I hate to say it again, but it goes back to the National Energy Transition Strategies or the NETS, a least cost approach, a loose a least cost pathway for these islands is generally around solar. Now, some of the islands that are fortunate enough to have a geothermal resource, the least cost pathway is, is also dovetailed in with a lot of geothermal for baseload. But the majority of the islands don't have the, the geothermal, right? So their least cost pathway is heavy on solar. And we had just put our first utility scale project in St. Lucia under the RMI banner. Um, Anguilla had just put theirs in. St. Vincent had put theirs in. Montserrat was, like you said, getting ready to put theirs in. So we wanted to get ahead of this before, you know, all the critics say, hey, look, you can't go renewable because this is why. You know, and there's some horrific pictures from Puerto Rico, a lot of failed systems. But we dove into this headfirst as objective as possible. And we hired two incredible uh, structural engineers from, from uh, they used to be with Sun Edison. So they spent like their careers in a wind tunnel, right? Understanding the dynamics of wind loading on PV systems. And they did forensic analysis on four different systems uh, after Irma and came up with a list of common attributes of survival and common attributes of failure. And some of the survival stories are incredible. I'm talking 185 mile an hour, 200 plus gust survivals. And of course, <laughs> you know, five, 10% of the panels had 
debris damage, but from a structural failure standpoint, they were good. Uh, and then there were others that did fail and, and, we, and we got to the bottom of that. So really it was a response to a market that was nascent and just coming online. And we had all these plans and not just us, you know, Jamaica, you know, certainly uh, Dominican Republic had huge, you know, solar projects on the books. So we wanted to get ahead of that and really get a set of best practices forward um, and really kind of get in front of some of the critics that say, you can't go solar and this is why. And what's I, what I found fascinating, and this is like, you know, I see a lot of folks that will throw out a white paper and they presume to address an issue. Uh, you know, what you guys did with that forensic analysis is actually say, hey, here are the similarities of failed systems. What can we learn from that? Here are the common uh, attributes of surviving systems and what can we learn from that? And it's presented uh, as, you know, just as black and, black and white fact to uh, decision makers in the region to say, when you're considering your RFP, these might be things. They're not fear, uncertainty, and doubt you're injecting into the process. This is actual certainty and we need to address it as requirements, project being built, uh, moving forward. You guys are about to release uh, a second version to this. Uh, you know, this document, is, uh, as I, I believe I remember, was the number one do downloaded document from RMI's website in 2018. 2018, number one downloaded document. It had a ton of trash in. We didn't realize, you know, how thirsty the industry was for this. I mean, we had a ton of downloads from Asia. Uh, just think about typhoons and the typhoon activity that we, we don't talk about enough in the United States, but it's, it's been prevalent. So, yeah, we, we just had an outcry that this was exactly what the industry needed. We want you guys to do uh, a rooftop version because this one was just ground mount. We were, we were really focused on the utilities who had all these big plans. You know, the, the Jamaican project, which is the largest in Caricom, you know, 50 plus megawatts was in the design phase at the time. We needed to get in front of that and, and utility scale was where it was at. But obviously, you know, rooftop is and, and you know, very prevalent and uh, the number one resource for um, commercial and residential. So we wanted to get in front of that as well. And I think um, folks will be pretty impressed with all the you know various authors that we've got on this one. We've got even more authors on this one. A lot of great feedback from Puerto Rican installers who went through firsthand you know survivals and failures and be able to give some feedback there. That's um, cool. Some good some good USVI installers as well. And that's going to be coming out, that, that updated version is coming out um, in the next week or two. Is that right? Yeah, that's going to be lost at, launched at the Clinton Global Initiative in San Juan on February 18th. In both of the conversations we've had, you've pointed to the fact that a lot of these battles are won with economic arguments. You go in, you look at the national entry tra uh, transition strategy, model penetration, like you said, and how it can be how it can be achieved with controls that are reasonable and affordable and in often cases, least cost. It seems to me like RMI as an organization has been focused on ROI and economics uh, at the exclusion of some of the more esoteric environmental arguments. And I wonder, has the current climate change politics of the world changed how RMI operates or how you guys show up in these conversations? I mean, we are seeing a lot more discussion around climate change and and how it, it, it we can't be so uh, economics driven on every single element. Yeah, exactly right. Um, you know, RMI traditionally, you know, took took to kind of the middle road there, you know, very neutral, um, was not political at all. Uh, in fact, Amory Lovin said had uh, consulted every U.S. president, you know, Republican or Democrat, you know, since the late 70s. But as of, you know, the last couple of years, 
you know, climate change uh, has been central Rocky Mountain Institute. And although we still come in hard with the economic analysis, there's been uh, a, a much greater push for urgency and for faster transition and for bigger plays. RMI is in India, RMI is in China, RMI is in Sub-Saharan Africa, and of course, you know, uh, very influential and domestically. One last question I have around uh, influence and impact of RMI is that RMI, along with a lot of uh, a lot of uh, uh, other organizations, projections they work with the institutions around the world that look at renewables penetration and decide, sort of, I'll say, postulate the role that different types of generation are going to have over a certain time period. Uh, given what we know about the work that you guys are actively doing, trying to influence, foster, influence, foster, and grow the renewables market. I'm surprised, and many are surprised, I would say, to see the role that you have, uh, you know, diesel playing, for example, uh, looking out in the next 20 years in many of the forecasts that you provide uh, around the Caribbean and even natural gas for, for many parts of the world. And I wonder, is RMI uh, in this scenario aggressive enough and what might you sort of what commentary might you provide around uh, the role of traditional fossil fuels moving forward? Yeah, excellent. Um, so all, you know, back to the national energy transition strategies, fact-based, right? Uh, we're not a 100% environmental organization. So we, we want to bring the facts to the table. And in many of these uh, countries, you know, diesel plays a baseload role for a number of years, in some cases, you know, over a decade. And that's just us being conservative, with projections on solar and battery and other resources. And I think it's, it's important for us and our utility audience to not be incredibly aggressive, but to be very pragmatic. Now, with that being said, it's always, you know, an incredible feeling when you do something in St. Lucia in 2016, and by 2018, all your pr projections are obsolete because solar and battery went down by a extra 25% of what you'd even modeled. And we're already at the 20, 2023 pricing in 2019. Now that feels good. And I'd much rather go back to the utility and update that model in 2020, be incredibly aggressive and then have them push back and say, that's not realistic. You know, So there's, a, there's kind of a push and play there. And I think we like being surprised by, by solar and battery because it really just you know, underscores our argument that that's where the transition should start in the majority of these countries. Chris, it's amazing how uh, your perspective from both the entrepreneurial and uh, you know governmental work that you've done back with EPA uh, and now with RMI involved in multiple island jurisdictions, uh, helping them navigate the uncertainty and the need for change. Uh, I wonder what, if any, advice might you have for fellow entrepreneurs who are currently really trying to wrap their head around how to help, uh, in particular, uh, small island developing states. And let's just say broader Latin America. Let's just assume that the you know, first world markets will figure themselves out. You know, this, this is everywhere now. This is, you know, I don't know how many thousands of islands are in Indi Indonesia and the Philippines. And, you know, you've got all the, the small mini grid systems throughout sub-Saharan Africa. And, you know, for the most part, South America and some parts of Central America as well. Um, and of course, you know, the Caribbean and, and the Pacific where, all these islands, all these communities are going to transition because it's just cost effective to do so. And if you're there as an entrepreneur, you might look at some of the nonprofits that are, you know, in those jurisdictions and maybe be able to, 
you know, bolster their ranks or give them more of a entrepreneurial commercial perspective on things because it's done nothing but accelerate RMI and the, and the progress in the Caribbean. Obviously, it, it's going to take a village here to transition all these various markets and, and geographies. And so if entrepreneurs are, like you said earlier, maybe a bit too early, you know, take it from me who was incredibly apprehensive and didn't think that I'd be around, you know, very long with a nonprofit. Here I am, you know, really drinking the Kool-Aid and really getting a lot of um, fulfillment uh, personally, even spiritually out of um, working in the Caribbean uh, as a nonprofit. Well, Chris, as we round uh, third base here, headed for home, I have a few questions that look out a bit into what we see coming for the industry. What has you most excited right now about clean energy, about development in, in the Korean, other island states, Latin America? What do you see as next around the corner? Yeah, what has me most excited is, you know, if I look back and, and part of this process with you, Nico, and I, I thank you is to kind of look back of where I've come from and where we are now. You know, I went from an organization, a U.S. agency that was regulating the problem, that was regulating pollution, that was regulating, you know, air, water, ground, to being a part of the solution, right? To building the renewable energy systems, which replace these old polluting systems. And that is just incredibly fulfilling. <laughs> the guy with the regulatory book writing a, writing a fine to someone that's actually providing a solution that is a win-win across the board. In terms of where... I see things going where, where I'll probably follow is uh, the battery energy storage you know, market is just incredible across so many industries. And I feel that at RMI, we're on the front lines of that right now, everything that we're doing in the, in the islands and being able to take that skills and experience into some of the larger markets, um, I think it'd be really exciting. Yeah, it's fun to see. I mean, just talking about RMI broadly, you know, I'm a big fan of the Energy Transition Show, which I've mentioned on here before with Chris Nelder and uh, you guys just launched the Energy Transition Magazine, shameless plug for our friend Christian over there. I think that there's a lot of things that you guys are doing that are pull techniques, right? They're, they're helping folks see what's possible while digging into the economics of how and why it's possible. I'll mention the studies that you guys have done on battery integration to the grid, the, and then additionally, the work that, that uh, Chris does, Chris Nelder, on EVs and electric vehicle charging infrastructure. It's fascinating the number, the multifaceted approach that Amory and everyone at RMI has been able to imbue into this organization that helps in what would be considered a success by just about any standard for any nonprofit. Like your islands program is a small subset of everything that RMI is tackling. You know, it's just baffling. Yeah, there's incredible, incredible people at RMI. Yeah. And I, that's something I didn't even mention, Nico, is, um, we're working with the government of Bermuda and their utility Belco on a huge bus uh, transition going from diesel buses to EVs and just not even, you know, all the things that you have to do from a regulatory standpoint, they have to change their time of use rates because when all the buses are plugged in, it was actually detrimental to the economics, the way the, reg the regs were set up because you actually get punished when you go to super high volumes. So just getting getting into all the weeds that make up an energy transition, particularly in the transportation sector, which is now 100% dependent on the electricity sector, right? So it's really exciting. 
Um, and, you know, our team, you know, Dr. Caitlin Bunker, uh, Justin Locke, they are tackling that this year in Bermuda, which hope we have a template for some of all these other islands that want to go EV buses, which again is another olive branch to the utility. Hey guys, won't you like to have, you know, 10%, 15%, 20% more load, particularly at night when no one's using it, you know? So very exciting stuff. Well, Chris, I know we could talk uh, for hours about these topics. Let me ask a few pointed questions just about the way that you operate. And I'll start with what book or books have you recommended the most or gifted the most and why? Do I do a lot of gifting? I need to do more gifting, Nico. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a New Year's resolution for me. I got to gift books more. But what am I reading? You know, I read a diversity of stuff now. Um, Uninhabitable Earth by Wallace Wells is just incredibly depressing and <laughs> um, just a whole nother perspective on on kind of climate projections and where we're at. Just put down uh, Homo Dues by uh, Harari, mm-hmm. which is an incredible book about, you know, maybe the future of humanity. And that really, you know, kind of pride in our team on people skills and playmaking <laughs> after, I don't know, a decade, I just picked back up. Uh, win, uh, winning friends and influencing people, people yeah. by uh, Dale Carnegie. Um, so that's been pretty cool. And that's probably something I'll need to gift to the team this year is, uh, that old, you know, that old shelf, you know, self-help book. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much to be learned. I have a mentor of mine who reads two books every year. The first is how to influence and influence people. And the second is seven habits of highly effective, uh, leaders. And they're both, uh, I mean, they're both just fantastic reads. The, uh, the, the effective executive, I think it's one of of yours as well. So that's, that's something that's on my, my list for 2020. I just recommended that book to one of my coaching clients today. It is, uh, it, that is a tome that, uh, and we did it as a book study as our first book study in Suncast back in, uh, in the spring. And then actually there's a, there's an issue. If anyone's curious, Luis Morales, who's been helping us with our book study, uh, group sort of lead that just did a write up that we're, that we're publishing in our 2019 year in review, where he gives a little bit of, uh, insight into our learning from each one of the books that we studied and, and ex- effective executive is one of those. So I'd encourage folks to go back and read that. And, uh, if you don't have, um, if you, if you haven't picked that one up, you can, search Suncast for Effective Executive and find a link to, to, to that on Amazon, which every purchase that you buy through our links on the page help us to keep this, uh, keep this show going. Hey, Chris, what habit or consistent practice has had the greatest impact on the way that you show up in the world? I mean, for work, I like to stay grounded in the people and the culture where I'm working. So, you know, getting on the ground, using local taxi drivers, eating at the local you know, cafes, reading the local newspaper, really trying to immerse myself of where I'm at and why I'm doing what I'm doing. That, that helps ground me. You know, I play lacrosse, you know, once a week, uh, old man lacrosse 40 and up. And, uh, that's, that's my physical fitness. That's my competitive outlet that, uh, I've got to do. And, you know, the more time I can uh, spend with my young family and my wife, uh, the the saner I am. Well, Chris, let's end today with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball as we roll into 2020? Segmented grids. Segmented grids, I think, are the future in many jurisdictions. And what I mean by that is having a grid that works holistically from top to bottom, but then can de- decouple in certain communities or certain you know, provinces and, and run independently. 
the battery technology that's out now allows that to happen, going from a power mode to more of an energy mode. And we are, you know, hopefully on the bleeding edge, on the tip of the spear of putting those into Puerto Rico and the Bahamas in the wake of both these uh, horrible storms. Chris Burgess is director of projects for the Rocky Mountain Institute's Islands Program. It has been a pleasure to have you here for not one, but two Suncast episodes. Chris, thanks for your time. And we'll look back, look to have you back soon uh, for some fun announcements about other ways RMI is making an impact. That'd be great, Nico. Thank you for your time and the opportunity. It's been wonderful. All right. All right, Solar Warrior. Uh, well, I'm stoked that you have made it through all the way to the end of this episode. You stuck with us and I'm grateful. If you're eager to keep learning, and I know that you are, then you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this and every discussion on Suncast, along with the social media links, book recommendations, and much more on the blog at mysuncast.com. And hey, while you're there, please take two more minutes of your precious time to give us your feedback in our listener survey. We are learning a ton about how we can bring you even more value, just like having these Ask Me Anythings, putting out some courses. I mean, the year is young and we are getting rolling. So go to mysuncast.com, take that survey and give us your feedback on how else we can serve you this year. And I hope you'll tune in next week as I have Andrew Eisenberg of Green IT Solutions discussing how he grew a thriving software business right in the renewable energy wave. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.